Tonight I'm going to read for us from Ephesians chapter 2. And we're continuing our, our, our vision renewal series. And we're going to look at the second half of Ephesians chapter 2 tonight to uh, talk about uh, community. And I'll talk about a little bit more of that in just a moment. But if you would like to follow along, feel free to, uh, to do so or you're welcome to just listen. This is Ephesians chapter 2 beginning at verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body to the cross, thereby killing the hostility And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. As I said, we're, we're taking a break from our series in the Gospel of Mark in order to spend the month of September looking at those uh, values, our vision and values here at Red Mountain Church that explain who we are and what we're doing and why we're doing it. And we as a church, have come to land on four words, worship, grace, community, and place. And these are themes that bubble up out of the Bible, that give expression to uh, what we think as we reflect on our time and our place here in in the city of Birmingham as, as a church. These four values need to characterize who we are and everything that we do. And last week, we looked at the word uh, grace from Luke chapter 7. Uh, Simon the Pharisee and the sinful woman from the city and Jesus and how their interactions at a banquet help us to see the glory and the beauty and the riches of grace. And I, I picked this passage about community, uh, one, because it's, it's just chalked full with rich gospel truths about how, how grace Not only does it change your relationship with God, but it fundamentally changes your relationship with his people. This passage follows right on the heels of one of the more uh, profound passages on grace that you'll find in the Bible. In Ephesians chapter 2, we read perhaps a, a familiar verse to some of us when it says that, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this It's not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And right after this passage, Paul says, therefore, in other words, on the basis of this grace 
this gift of salvation, let me tell you about how that changes the church, how it changes God's community in the ways in which his people can actually relate to one another. And therefore, I want to look at this passage. It is, uh, in many ways, as a, as a pastor, it's an overwhelming one because there's so much in it. So what I want to do, I want to try to show you four key ingredients to true gospel community. And let me tell you what they are, and then we'll work our way through. The first one is the possibility of gospel community begins with remembering. The second one is the problem of gospel community can be boiled down to hostility. The third one is that the healing of gospel community is found on the cross. And finally, the building of gospel community is by the Spirit. So we have the possibility, the problem, the healing, and the building. So first, let's look at the possibility. Notice here in verses 11 and 12, the very first thing that Paul says to uh, the church in Ephesus, which would be, if not uh, at least the majority of this church is made up of Gentiles, and Paul is there as a Jew, and he says to them, remember, remember who you were apart from Christ. That's the very first thing he says, is to remember who you were without Jesus. And he describes their situation, which would be true of any one of us, actually, apart from Christ, where we're separated, alienated from God's covenant people, strangers to his promises, having no hope and without God in the world. That sounds rather disheartening and discouraging, but that's where he begins And even says we need to remember that. And the reason we need to remember that is because Paul's understanding of community involves two very distinct stories that in the end are bound together. Let me show you what I I mean here. For him to say to all of these Gentiles in Ephesus, remember who you were apart from Christ, is to say you need to realize that God's plan to save sinners goes way back before you. In fact, it goes all the way back to the very earliest chapters in the Bible. And what we learn is that here we see that Paul, in light of the gospel, the Jews of the Old Testament and the Gentiles throughout the Old Testament all into the New Testament, their two stories are distinct, but in the gospel they're bound together. And what we see is that at first, in Genesis chapter 12, when God goes to Abraham and calls Abraham, perhaps you might remember what he says. He says, it's through you that I'm going to bless the nations. In other words, the Israelites, the story of the Jews is incomplete without the Gentiles. And at the very same time, what we also learn is that the story of the Gentiles is hopeless apart from the Jews. The promise of salvation by grace through faith is for Gentiles too. These two groups of people, which in light of the the New Testament, we learn 
that you could essentially break up all of humanity into those two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. And they're distinct. Until we get to the gospel, we get to the New Testament, we get to the work of Jesus, and we begin to see that all along these two stories really are bound together. They're interdependent. And what I want you to see here is that the possibility of community for Paul really begins with understanding that. It begins with understanding and noticing and seeing that in this, in this passage, what we see him talking about is how it is that in Jesus, people who come from radically different backgrounds, very different cultures, different races, different ethnicities, are brought into one community. And so the possibility for a community is really this for a church like Red Mountain, for, for you and me, is realizing in the same way that the Jews and the Gentiles in this grand story of God's salvation, they're bound up together and really dependent on one another to enjoy and understand and experience all that God has promised throughout the Bible. We have to understand that that's true of us as well, that you have a vital role to play in the lives of other people who are very different than you and vice versa. That in fact, it's central to experiencing the transforming power of God's grace. And I wonder, it's a question for you to ponder, do, do, you, do you see that you are needed? There are other people who are radically different than you who probably you don't even know, who need you in their lives. And are you aware of, in light of the story of God's salvation, that you need those people? That when, when we fail to move towards people who are totally different than us, we actually fail to see and experience and Understand the wideness of God's grace. How deep and wide and rich it really is. However, when we see that there's this interdependence, that these two stories of Jew and Gentile and how they coalesce and come together in the gospel, they also begin to show that there's hostility. This is where we have to face the problem of gospel community. Not just that it's possible, but precisely because it's possible, there is a problem. And Paul twice mentions in this passage hostility, once in verse 14 and once in verse 16. And the simplest way to help you understand what he means by hostility is it's enmity. It's hatred towards another person. It's essentially saying that we have enmity or hatred toward another person who receives God's welcome and we don't think that they should. And this is a pervasive problem in the first century, in the, in the period of the New Testament. You could go look at the book of Galatians or Acts chapter 15 where the Jews of the day who were exposed to the gospel became incredibly nervous about Paul's message because he essentially said they don't have to become like you in order to become followers of Jesus. 
created all kinds of tension, all kinds of controversy and hostility. So there's hostility in this passage that primarily is in view as horizontal relationships in the church. But I also want you to see there's another kind of hostility here that if we don't deal with it and see it for what it really is, we will never have the humility or find the grace to deal with our hostility towards those who aren't like us. And it's implied when Paul says in verse 16 that Jesus has come that he might reconcile us both to God. Implied in that phrase there is that there is another kind of hostility that needed to be dealt with. And Paul in Romans 5 talks about this where he describes that we are actually enemies of God. And what you need to understand there is Paul is not saying that God is our enemy. That we have issues with him. And unless he lines up with our demands, we are, he is our enemy. What Paul is saying is that we are God's enemy. That God looks at us with just hostility. So what I want you to see here, that in this passage, the two kinds of hostility, one of them is unjust hostility. That is, the ways in which our hearts want to carve out a niche for ourselves to exist in such a way that exclude other people. And we will even use incredibly profound religious, cultural reasons to do that. That would be unjust hostility. But Paul here also speaks of a just hostility, that God is in the right and that we are not. And therefore, in order for us to overcome this problem, we need to be healed from it. We need to be healed from both kinds of this hostility. And if we don't deal with or see how it is that God has dealt with his just hostility towards us, we will never find the humility to deal with our hostility towards other people. And therefore, we need to look at the the healing of gospel community. Notice here, God's solution to this problem in verse 13, Paul says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The solution to the hostility in the community of God's people is found in the cross of Jesus. He's actually here described as he himself is our peace. Think of it this way. Our peace in, in, in the church, in the community of faith, isn't our common background. It isn't our common culture. It isn't our common socioeconomic status. See, our peace is in Jesus. And when we fail to embrace that, to take that into the very core of your being, we will put something else in its place to be our peace. And that is where hostility finds its breeding ground. The cross is God's solution 
But how exactly does the cross heal Christian community? How does it actually resolve this hostility? Notice what he says here in verses 14 and 15. He says, after, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. And then he says, has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. It's a mouthful. What's he talking about? Notice for a second, what Paul is doing here, he puts in opposition in this passage, the blood of Christ is is opposite to the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. But what I want you to see here is that when Paul says the blood of Christ, he's referring to the sacrifice of Jesus. And when he talks about the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, he is talking about all that God has spoken and given to his people in the past through which they could have a relationship with God. All of the sacrifices, all of the offerings, everything that God set up, not to keep people away from him, but in order that they might have a relationship with him. And when you begin to see that here Paul puts in contrast almost the blood of Christ and the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, what he's saying is the final sacrifice has come. All of what God has said in the past to help us to see how it is he can have a relationship with sinful men and women, boys and girls, has found its fulfillment in the blood of Christ. In fact, in Hebrews 9, we read that the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin. They were temporary. We could even say they were incomplete because they didn't have the power to actually do what God allowed them to be used to do. It's only in the person of Jesus, in the blood of Christ, the Son of God, that this hostility that God has towards us, and rightly so, is completely poured out, put upon Jesus as the blood sacrifice for sinners. And where we discover what is it like to be treated with hostility, to know that we are actually someone's enemy and not be treated as such. It's only when the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus, His work begins to wash over you, that you begin to realize there is actually, there is work, there is news, there is a message that can fundamentally change the way that I relate to other people who, if I'm honest, I don't like and I don't want to have a relationship with. I'm not sure how to have a relationship with them. On the cross, God says to us, you know what, I don't, it doesn't matter how hard or how complicated In the gospel, I can bring beautiful relationships out of situations that you you couldn't imagine because I've done that for you. I have brought you back into fellowship with me and I can do that 
in the relationships that you have, however hard they may be. Therefore, the cross kills hostility between people because it shows us that no one is righteous. That no one stands in a position of superiority over someone else, whether you come from a religious background, like the Jews, or an irreligious background, like the Gentiles. And some actually say that it's possible that Paul here was thinking of a, the literal wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the inner courts in the Jerusalem temple. That there actually was a wall about yay high that separated the Gentiles from the Jews. And if you were a Gentile, you could not go past that wall. And if you did, it was punishable by death. And also, there is in view not just this wall that kept the Gentiles out and the Jews could go in, but then there was the curtain between uh, the people and the Holy of Holies. And the priests could only go in there once a year. And what Paul is saying is, the hostility has been done away with. Jesus has broken down the wall of hostility. On the cross, we learn in the Gospels that the curtain that barred us from entering into the Holy of Holies has been ripped in two. All of that is saying there is now access where there was no access. See, now in Jesus, Jew and Gentile share the inner court. In fact, with the curtain of the temple torn in two, we are now have access right into the very throne room of God through Jesus. And the result is, in verses 15 to 18, notice what Paul says. Because of what Jesus has done, through him, we now have access in one spirit to the Father. That through Jesus, he has made a whole new humanity. Look here, in verse 15. That he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two so making peace. This is the unique thing about Christian community, about the church. The church of Jesus is the one place on the planet where we are not most at our most basic level known by where you're from, by your resume, by your religiosity, or by your irreligiosity, by your culture, by your background, by your finances, but you are known by your identity with Jesus. It's the one place where God brings people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. It's an amazing vision, especially in a world like ours, with all of the, the conflict and the strife that the community of God's people, there is a vision put in front of us, held out to us in the cross of Jesus where true healing can happen, where true community can actually thrive. Now, how does that happen? This kind of healing, it's radical, it's beautiful, it's humbling, and it's, my guess, scary all at the same time. And so then we need to, how does this happen? See, the building of community 
Paul tells us in verse 22, look what he says. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is an overwhelming building project. This is not something that you and I can just pull off. However great of an idea we think it really is. It's a supernatural phenomenon. That God by his Holy Spirit has promised to do in light of what Jesus has done. Now how does this happen? This is, why is it by the Spirit? Let me remind you, at the beginning of the book of Acts, right at the very beginning, in verse 1, Luke tells us, referring back to the first book he wrote, the Gospel of Luke, he said, I began writing you everything that Jesus began to do and to say. The implication is that the rest of the book of Acts is everything that Jesus is going to continue to do and say, except what happens in the first chapter. Very early on, Jesus ascends into heaven. So how is it that Jesus continues to do the work, continues to work out what he has done in his church and in the world? It's by his Spirit And he does this, I'm going to give you four very brief ways that he does this. From verses 19 to 22. The first way he does this in verse 19, he does it by reminding us of our true identity. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He reminds us of our true identity. He reminds us who you once were, but now who you are in Jesus. Fellow citizens, members of God's house, all of which come to us on the basis of Jesus and his work for us. And this is true for when Paul writes this, both to Jews and to Gentiles. He reminds us of our true identity again and again. And he secondly, he does this by building on the foundation of the gospel. By reminding us of who we really are. He does it in verse 20. Built on the foundation of the gospels, or on the uh, foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Here we begin to see this building metaphor begin to develop. That Jesus, through his apostles, who he gives, uh, really what he, they have a power of attorney. Jesus has taught and shown his disciples. He's appeared to his disciples. He has given them the authority to speak on his behalf. And he is the cornerstone, or some translations may say the capstone. The point here is that Jesus is the stone of highest honor in the church in the building structure of the church. In other words, the Spirit builds this kind of community by keeping our hearts and our eyes fixed on Jesus and His cross. And then, thirdly, how He does it is He fashions our lives together, especially people who are very different from each other, into a magnificent structure. Look in verse 21 and verse 22. We see this, the, the phrases here, in whom, 
The whole structure is joined together. And then verse 22, being built together. And the imagery here of a temple, it, we have to kind of put ourselves back into the, the, the first century ancient Near East. A temple was built of huge stones. And when you get a stone, at first, it, it doesn't fit well with other stones. They have to be uh, hewn. They have to be cut. There's mason work to be done in order that those stones would fit together in such a way that they would build a lasting structure. That's what the Spirit is doing with each one of us. We're ragged-edged stones, self-absorbed stones, stones who maybe don't like the stone that we're tucked in with. And yet the Spirit of God is taking us, ragged-edged stones, and fashioning us into a beautiful structure. And all for this purpose... Verse 22, that we would be a dwelling place for God. This is the amazing thing about this passage. The vision that Paul gives us for the church here ought to blow your mind. Because what he's saying is that among us, among God's people, in whom God's Spirit has taken up residence in your life, this is where heaven and earth overlap. God dwells with his people. So we need to ask ourselves, where are people going to see God? Where can they experience the overlap between heaven and earth? Instead of feeling like or thinking that really Christianity is about how I get back to God. How is a community like ours a place where you can experience where heaven and earth overlap, where God, because of Jesus, takes up residence in the midst of his people. That's an amazing vision for us as a community. Think about that. This is our calling as a community. This is our identity. We are called to be the temple of God. And the temple is where God dwells. This is his household. This is where God and all that he has promised overlaps with our lives here and now. And it is where we again and again come back to this great promise of his that one day God's presence here won't be constrained to just his church, but it will take over the entire world. He will make everything new. He will wipe away every tear from every eye. There will be no more sorrow or no more pain anymore. See, community at Red Mountain Church is important precisely because the cross of Jesus is central to who we are, and they they go hand in hand. And I hope you're you're seeing here that with the, the possibility of community, the problem of community, the healing of community, and the building of community, that this passage is rich with relational implications for our common life together. And it's ripe with good news for dealing with the problem of community through the gospel and the confidence that God gives and the promises he makes to build us something into, be, something, into something beautiful. 
But it also does challenge us. It challenges us to dig more deeply into the gospel to root out our own hostilities that resist and they persist however polite they may seem. See, as one writer put it, if our churches are still divided in any way along racial or cultural lines, our very grasp of the meaning of Jesus' death is called into question. And my guess, when you hear quotes like that, you hear statements like that, we we tend to have one of two responses. One is self-justification. But the other one might be just despair. How could, that, how, how could we ever get there? But see, this is what I want you to see again. This happens by the Spirit because of what Jesus has done. You see, how Paul speaks to our struggle here as a church community, he says, remember what God has done for you in Jesus. And look for, rest in, trust, ask Him to do what he says here, that he is building us into a household, into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, uh, we ask that you would make these, this passage so in our community here at Red Mountain Church. And Father, we, we read this story, this, this, this passage, and all that it has to say And I pray that you would help us to discover anew the blood of Christ, the hostility that he has broken down, not just in our relationships with one another and with other people, but that he has once and for all removed your just hostility towards us. And I pray that that good news, that freedom, that access would fundamentally change how we live our lives towards one another and towards our city and towards those who are very, very different than us. And perhaps it's totally mind-boggling how we could even imagine having a relationship with some people. And yet, that's exactly what the gospel does. And we see it right here in this passage. And we pray that you would do that for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.